Amen. You guys can be seated. Good morning, good morning. My name is Joel. For those of you who I have not had the pleasure of meeting yet, I'm the community group's pastor here at Spring Branch. Uh, This is Family Sunday for those of us in the room. For those of you on the stream, every Sunday is Family Sunday, am I right? Um, But Family Sunday, so I wanted to start just by inviting, uh, engaging with those of you under the age of 18, okay? Listen up, kids, students, hear me on this one. Uh, If you are paying attention, I'm gonna drop the word lamb a number of times in this sermon. And so at the end, I'm gonna ask you, there will be a quiz at the end, how many times did I use the word lamb? It's incredibly important that you keep note, keep careful tally marks of that. Uh, This family Sunday, Memorial Day weekend. Hey, we're gonna be in Revelation 5. Revelation 5. An easy passage for Family Sunday, right? Uh, I figured out that it was Family Sunday after I chose the passage, but hey, we're going Revelation 5. We are talking about worship today. Before I was a pastor, I was a teacher. I taught high school math and Bible at a couple of different schools uh, in Houston, out of Houston. And at my first school, uh, one of my teaching mentors, his name is John Snell, Uh, Shout out, Mr. Snell, if you're watching this, for whatever reason you might be watching this. Uh, And Mr. Snell had a kind of a teaching motto or a slogan. It was this right here. It was, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Mr. Snell uh, taught chemistry, taught geometry. Uh, Dude was a wizard. He was teaching all kinds of maths and sciences. And this was his goal, is if you came into geometry and you were just overwhelmed by the quadratic equation. You thought you were gonna die, physically die in that class. If completing the square to you meant just drawing four straight lines, okay? Mr. Snell wanted to comfort you. You were going to survive. You were going to make it through his class, he promised. But if you came in a little cocky, a little self-confident, a little like, what's this guy got to tell me? He was an engineer, master's in engineer from University of Texas, so he had forgotten more math than those students were ever going to remember. But what did he have to tell me? Then his job was to afflict you. His job was to remind you of all that you did not know about math, about geometry, about science. So no matter who you were, Mr. Snell had a purpose for you as a teacher, no matter where you fell on that spectrum. And Revelation is the same way. Book of Revelation is a book that has the same effect. It is here to comfort the afflicted, persecuted followers of Jesus. It is a healing balm that lets them know that their suffering is not in vain, that Jesus suffered along with them And that somehow, in God's economy, in the kingdom of God, their suffering, Jesus' suffering, amounts to victory in the kingdom. But Revelation also afflicts the comfortable. Jesus has strong messages in the opening chapters of Revelation, the first few chapters of Revelation, to the powerful, to the affluent, 
to those with social capital who have compromised their faith in ways that they may not have expected they would. They've forgotten their first love. They've bent a knee to the gods of Babylon, to the fallen kingdoms of this world, to money, to lust, to political affiliation, to power. They need a compelling vision. They backed the wrong horse. It's actually the lamb who is on the throne. Q chapters four and five. And a worship service is breaking out in heaven. Now you might be asking, look, Joel, I thought that Revelation was like this cataclysmic end of the world, end of the earth, left behind type stuff that we can hardly even begin to wrap our minds around. So what could possibly, what are we, what are we here to learn in chapters five? But it's here that I'd invite you Just an invitation, just for today, to read Revelation 5, really all of Revelation, not so much as a secret code book with dates and timelines embedded in it, but as a lens through which to see the world as it truly is. That's what an apocalypse does. That's literally a revelation of the world. It's been said that John crams over 400, 400 allusions to the Old Testament into his 22 chapters of Revelation. So that means two things. One, I do not have time to, even possibly time to unpack all of the allusions that we're gonna run into in chapter five, although we'll hit a couple of them. But two, We don't look to world history when we're trying to understand the book of Revelation. We're looking to biblical history instead. We're not using the Houston Chronicle for interpreting scripture. We're using Chronicles, as in first and second. So, the revelation of John was as piercing and relevant to its original audience as it is to us today and as it will be for every generation of followers of Jesus until he returns again, okay? That means that Revelation 5 has profound implications for how you and I worship today. Worship is our opportunity, no matter where on the spectrum we fall, of comfortable or afflicted, to come face to face with the risen Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain. One writer says it this way, Christians worship with a conviction that they are in the presence of God. Worship is an act of attention to the living God who rules, speaks and reveals creates and redeems, orders and blesses. We spend our weeks giving our attention to a number of different things. Our task list at work, our kids swim practice, the pile of dishes in the sink where Dogecoin is currently being valued, 
But in worship, we come together as a body to affirm, to remind each other that no matter who or what claims to be on the throne, Monday through Saturday, they're liars. It's the lamb who is on the throne. And it's not just our responsibility, it's our joy to bow all that we are before all that he is, before all that he has revealed himself to be because he's worthy of that. I understand that there is a sense in which all of our lives can be worship. Literally everything that you do or say is an, can be turned into an act of worship to your creator how you serve the needy, how you drive to work, how you pay your taxes, how you treat your kids, whatever the case may be, I get that. But Revelation 5 is going to give special attention, unique focus to corporate singing worship that's breaking out. John is gonna answer the question for us, who is worthy and on what basis are they worthy? So let's read. Chapter five, starting in verse one. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Let's stop there for just a second. Revelation chapter one, verse one opens with an angel telling John, let me show you a vision of what is about to take place. A revelation. It is a revelation of Jesus, about Jesus, and by Jesus. So put yourself in John's shoes for just a second. You are literally the one responsible for culminating and uh, capstoning the entirety of biblical revelation. You are putting the bow on all of the of the package of scripture, of the revelation of God, you are gonna be the one that says, this is what's really true. This is how it really is. This is how it really ends. And so as you start writing, you get to chapter four and five, and here is this scroll, a scroll that is meant to draw our attention back to Ezekiel 2, 9, and 10. You don't have to turn there, but in that scroll and in this scroll is the blueprints of God's plan to fix what is wrong with our world. That by necessity means, if God's gonna fix what's wrong with our world, that means judging everything that is evil in our world. It means the defeat of Satan, the defeat of death. This is his plan for the restoration of all, his, of all things. This is how he establishes his rule over all the earth. This is the meaning of your history, my history, church history, world history. Aren't you eager to know what's in that scroll? 
John tells us that what he sees, uh, what he wants us to see in this chapter, excuse me, John tells us what he wants us to see in this chapter by using what are called perfect tense verbs. I'm not gonna go into that, and unfortunately, it's not super clear in our English Bibles where those are, so I'm just gonna tell you where they are as we go, and you can highlight them. But he uses a couple of these perfect tense verbs to talk about this scroll. So highlight, underline, circle box, whatever you do with these, but it's an unusual scroll. It is a scroll written on, you can highlight that, and sealed. Here's what it means. Written on means that God's plan, this scroll that represents God's plan for fixing everything that's wrong with our world, it's written, it's done, it's set. He's not He's not at the writer's desk just kind of figuring it out on the fly along with you and I know it's, it's in place, okay? And this scroll is sealed seven times over, com- seven being the number of completion or fullness. It is completely sealed, meaning there is nothing you or I or any creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, there is nothing we can do to alter the plan of God. Here's what we wanna know about God from this scroll. Here's what John wants us to tell, wants to tell us about this scroll and by extension about God who is holding this scroll is that he is sovereign. He is in total control of the events of human history. And I think that our worship is going to suffer when we lose sight of that fact. When we allow fear and anxiety to take the wheel, we neglect the truth that God is ultimately, fully, finally in control. Oh, look, I wanna, I wanna tread lightly. I am not a licensed counselor. I understand that there can be a complex web of things going on when we start talking about anxiety, stress, fear, et cetera, et cetera. But I can tell you, I am here to suggest that having too small a view of God is one of the symptoms of fear and anxiety. One of the culprits of fear and anxiety. Look, I promise you that I am right there with you. I have regular wrestles with fear and anxiety. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's financial insecurity. Maybe it is a gripping fear of what others are think of you, that you are not actually going to be enough for your family, for your job, for your friends. Maybe that it's those around you that say that they care about you and love you. Maybe they're only saying that. Maybe they only are loving or caring about a glossed over, polished up version of you. There's all manner of things that we can be fearful and anxious over. But let me promise you something. Those fears and anxieties will become much larger on the days that you and I lose sight of something, that God is the one in control, that God is sovereign. When God's sovereignty and power are our focus, 
those of us who are afflicted within or without really find true comfort. But there is only one problem with this scroll. No one's able to open it. It's sealed up. And so John just loses it. Just like the prophet Isaiah 700 years ago in Isaiah 29 weeps that no one, that this, seal, that this scroll is sealed up, can't be opened up. They're crushed that the plan of God, this revelation of what God's doing in the world, that they can't know it, that it's hidden from them. So John is inconsolable because all of this hope and expectation that he was looking forward to from from chapter one, let me show you what's about to happen. This is all about to come to nothing. This all just comes crashing down until verses six through 10. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign over all the earth, shall reign on the earth. So let's stop there. You know, when we use the term, uh, you, you might've heard the phrase, when it rains, it pours. Nowadays, we use that uh, not in the way it was originally uh, thought, I don't think. Uh, when, we, when we say it rains, it pours, we're thinking like when something's bad, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse, right? Uh, but if you are of a certain age, you may remember Morton Salt, their old slogan was, when it rains, it pours. And what they actually meant was, even when all of the circumstances, uh, all of the humidity is in the air when it is actually physically raining. Okay, salt would have this tendency to kind of clump up and Morton Salt didn't do that, right? So hey, when it's raining, don't worry, this still works, right? We are interested, Morton Salt was dialed into something that about human behavior, human nature. We want things that work. We want pragmatics. We want to know that something will function no matter what. Here's the problem, is I think that many of us, when we come to worship, we're coming with that same expectation. That this is functional. This does something for me. This accomplishes what I need it to. I'm coming into worship and, oh good, God, bless me because look, I put my dues in, right? I came today, I worshiped you, I did what you asked me to do. And so now we worship because of something that we're getting back. I had a friend the other day that was counseling someone uh, there on their wayward child and they kept saying something to the effect of, well, could you get him to church? You know, would that work? Could you, could you get them in just to the building, you know? And there was this, you know, look, I'm pro-church attendance. 
all right? I'm a big fan of the gathered community of, of faith, of believers. But there's this presumption that something like mystical, pseudo, uh, magical even goes on when we just step in. And if I can just get them kind of in the orbit of some Christian stuff, then functionally, this is going to work. This is going to fix their problems, their, the, the, their prodigal child, whatever, right? No, 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 no. No, no. We worship not because it works. We worship because of his work, because of Jesus's finished work. Don't miss this in, cha- uh, in verses six through 10. This is one of the most jarring gear change revelations in all of scripture. I look, I was told that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. I hear that there's a lion. Okay, this is Genesis 49. uh, Jacob pronounces a blessing. He's blessing all 12 of his children, the very end of Genesis before he dies. And he says of Judah, you are a lion. And it turns into this grand expectation for all of Israel of a conquering Messiah that is coming from the line of Judah. The root of David is Isaiah 11. It's this, this charred, this burnt up stump that has been cut down. Israel's been cut down and there's going to be this root that comes out of it. No matter how bad it got, we're going to conquer. We're going to come back. We're going to overcome. So we hear that there's this lion and we turn and see what? A bloody slaughtered lamb standing. There's another one to highlight, by the way, that perfect tense verb. We're told that the lamb is standing, highlight that, having been slain, highlight slain. Standing means that this lamb is alive and well. This is a resurrection image. It means that he is conquered, what we just saw in verse five. But having been slain means that the way that he conquered was by being slaughtered, by being crucified. The message of the cross is that winning comes by losing. Living comes by dying. Getting ahead comes by taking a step back. It is the upside down kingdom, the upside down gospel of Jesus. And so if we are making a life for ourselves, doing things exactly the way the world does them, then this... This is a message that afflicts us. This is a message that comes against us. If we are all about that hustle lifestyle, that crushing it lifestyle, whatever on earth that actually means, then we need to come to terms with the fact that we are out of step with the lamb who won by sacrificing his own life. That was real victory. So if we come to worship 
simply or primarily so that he will bless us, then my caution to you is that the message of Revelation 5 is worship the lamb, not because it works, but because of his work. Let's pick up in verse 11 through 14. Then I looked and around, I heard around the throne and the living creatures, or sorry, yeah, then I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Here's what we're being asked to see here. Everyone saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb to receive what? Power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Count them up. That's seven. There's another number of completeness there. What we're being told is that all, everything, every praise, every adoration, all of what you are, all of what you have is being given in worship to the Lamb. And then in the second stanza down here in verse 12, we've got this other list, power, wealth, wisdom, and might, and honor, excuse me, uh, blessing, honor, glory, and might forever. Now that sounds a lot like when King David dedicated the temple in 1 Chronicles 29, 11. David comes in and gives the exact same list in 29, 11. What are we being told about this? We are being told that all of the universe belongs to Jesus because he is conquered, because he was slain, because he is raised, because of who he is, everything that we have and everything that there is in the whole universe belongs to Jesus. But then the question is, well, so what? Okay, this is all, maybe, maybe you feel like this is kind of esoteric stuff, a little, a little abstract and and what, what do I do with this in the response song, in this coming week, next Sunday, whatever? Two suggestions for you. The first is to give honor in our worship. Uh, at the risk of picking on us a little bit, worship is, the best working definition of worship is bowing all that we are before all that God is bowing all that we are before all that God is. And if I, can, if I can pick on us just a little bit, when we were masks mandatory, okay, I don't know if you're like me, I would look around and go, man, I just wish I could see all of us singing. Like that's one of the things that was lost when we were in person, but still masking, mask mandatory as I'm going, gosh, I just wish I, it is an encouragement and a spurring on to me to look out and to see Seth Grant worshiping, to see Jake Glass worshiping. 
I just, that stirs me up and causes me to worship as well, especially if I know anything about those guys and what it is that they're worshiping in the midst of their circumstances, right? So when, I, don't, I had this moment um, when mass, the, sun, the first Sunday that masks were optional, we took them all off, I'm looking around and I'm going, oh, put them back on, there's only like half of us singing, you know? It's too depressing to know that there's only half of us singing. And look, I'm not trying to pick on us. I'm just asking if worship is taking everything, bringing everything that we have. I'm not talking about introvert, extrovert, like loud and proud or kind of just subdued. Look, I went to a Bible church in Midland for five years that was full of nothing but petroleum and chemical engineers, okay? So I know what it looks like to have real sincere worship from more kind of like, you know, your more stoic crowd. I get it. This is not a, uh, you know, your particular mode of worship. I'm just saying, are there coming out of your mouth? Does it matter to you that what we're being told is that Jesus is on the throne of all of, cre- of the whole universe? And when we come together, we are collectively responding to that truth. That we need our imagination to kind of be purged and refilled with the reality that he is in control. And that we need to actually submit our hearts, align our hearts with that truth. So give honor in your worship. Stop asking, did I like that song? Was it executed with technical precision? And start asking, is God pleased with the position of, with the disposition of my heart this morning? Look, giving honor when there's lots of verses throughout scripture that talk about God, that where God says, I'm not, I don't care about your services. I don't care about your songs because you're not, your hearts aren't right. And they're not just in the Old Testament. Book of Hebrews talks about bringing acceptable worship to God. It matters where our hearts are at when we come into this room and offer praise to him. So give honor in your worship. The second thing that I would say is be honest in your worship. Be honest in your worship. I learned this the other day. Do you know that in the entire book of Psalms, 150 Psalms, it's one of the longest books in the whole Bible, Do you know how many times the phrase, I love you, Lord, occurs? Twice. Psalm 18, verse one, and Psalm 116, verse one. One prominent worship leader said, what do we take from this? Well, what we take is that the psalmists were much less confident that they loved God with their whole heart than some of us today are. They were much more humble about the brokenness and prone to wanderness of their own hearts. So we sang, like I don't know if you've ever had this moment, but like I, 
Growing up, I had a hard time singing I Surrender All. Because in my mind, I'm going, no, I don't. Like, I'm probably not going to like by this evening or tomorrow. Why, why am I singing this? There are lots of songs. Well, one of the things I love about the songs that we're singing today, we're just talking about the lion and the lamb. We're pleading with all creatures of our God and King to lift up worship. We're praising him because he is worthy. It has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm gonna do. And yet so many of our songs or I'm gonna do this, and then I'm gonna do that, and then everybody's gonna see me do this, and then, oh, you better watch out because this is coming next. Be honest in your worship. We just saying we fall down. Doesn't mean you can't sing we fall down anymore, but look, sing it because you need to, not because it's accurate, right? Plead with your own heart in the midst of that. I surrender all. God, I want to surrender all. Doesn't mean you can't sing it. But when we worship, wrestle with God in the midst of that. I want to surrender my all to you, Lord. Today, that's a hard thing to do. But all to Jesus, all to Jesus, all to Jesus. We don't worship Jesus because it works. We worship Jesus because of his work. Let's pray. Jesus, you are worthy. You are worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Because you were slain You took our sin, you overcame death, you defeated Satan. And in doing so, in, it wasn't the final, it wasn't the last chapter, it wasn't the final story. You raised to life, you conquered Jesus. May we worship you because of what you have done. Not because we need something from you. Not because we feel so great or awesome or we're on top of the world that day. But because of who you are. We ask all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, under 18 crowd. How many lambs did we count? Somebody should give, it, give me a hand. Who was counting? No, you can't. That, that's, come on now. What do we got? What'd you come up with? 16? I think that's about right. I added a couple in there. So I had, I had 14 and I think I added a couple. So let's go with that. 16. Skittles or M&Ms? No, I'll throw them to you. Don't worry. M&Ms. All right, dad, here. Or mom. Whoa, oh yeah. All right, bonus round. Anybody else? Maybe I'll even open this up to Jenny over here. Uh, what was the definition of worship we gave? Right there. All right. Okay, this is gonna be a little tricky. Let me see if I can get this to Travis. Ready? One, two, three. Come on. Oh, no. All right. 
Guys, if you will stand, we are gonna close in response. Whether you find yourself afflicted or you came in pretty comfortable with where you were with Jesus this morning, he is worthy. Let's respond to him in that. So if the prayer ministry team could come forward, if you have anything on your heart, if you just want to say, Jesus, you are worthy. And maybe you've never said that before in your life. Maybe you've never bowed a knee to him and said, I want you to be the Lord of my life, Jesus, because you died on the cross for my sake, for your glory. You were raised and I trust in you. Would you come forward? Let somebody know that so that they can pray with you. Let's sing.